Welcome to The Wrap-Up, our podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap. Happy 2022 to you all, and a very warm welcome to my co-host, The Wrap contributing editor, Ben Svetke, and my good buddy. Hey, Ben. Hi, Sharon. How are you? Great. Excited to do this with you. Me too. Yeah, yeah. So this is our first wrap-up podcast of the year, and we have a very big show to kick it off. I will be joined by two of the documentary directors who have made the Oscars shortlist in their category, Megan Mylon, the director of Simple as Water, and Nanfu Wang, the director of In the Same Breath. We will also be previewing the Sundance Film Festival with help from our own film reporter, Brian Welk. But first, let's get down to some Hollywood headlines right after this message. For your awards consideration, Hacks, the Max original nominated for two SAG awards, including Outstanding Performance by an Ensemble in a Comedy Series. Starring Gene Smart, the series explores a dark mentorship that forms between a Las Vegas comedian and an entitled outcast 25-year-old writer. Praised for its, quote, whip-smart, hilarious cast, close quote, don't miss what critics call, quote, comedy gold and this year's most perfect piece of television. Hacks is now streaming on HBO Max. So let's uh, look at some of the headlines, starting with Scream being a hit once again at the box office. Yeah. Uh, the fifth installment in the franchise opened to $30 million making it the best opening for a horror film released across the three-day Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, weekend. Um, And despite opening to pandemic-impacted box office, it managed to top the last Scream film released in 2011. That one took in only $18.6 over its three-day opening. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I'm not sure what that tells us about where the box office is because – for for months and months, it's really only been Spider Man that that made, did any business. What do you what do you think this means that Scream did so well? I think it's probably appealing to a younger audience. Maybe I yeah. don't know that they seem fearless in returning to theaters. Um, although I'm kind of surprised by that because Scream is a you know is not a young property. So a little bit of a mystery to me as to what's driving that. Well, I mean. I, I think we know that horror is something that people like to experience at, at, in a group. So that seems like a, a good bet for a box office, like go get, get off your couch and go to the movies. And um, kind of counterintuitive. I mean, we're sort of living the last two years through a horror movie, all our own. And uh, maybe people just want a different type of horror to escape from that. Yeah. I think, uh, I think for sure it's uh, it's escapism for sure. Okay, moving on. In media news, over this weekend, The Wrap broke the story of a bombshell email that was sent to top editors at Entertainment Weekly. The email accused uh, the publication of having declining standards that the author of the email said made a joke, quote unquote, of the publication. The email was signed by the elephant in the room. I have seen the email myself. It was sent to the top editors in early January and said that the writing at EW has gone downhill and that while page hits are important, quote, people are going to tune out if the articles are poorly written. Um, This is, again, quoting from this letter, the out-of-context clickbait titles, out-of-context quotes, and film reviews that sound like paid-for PR pieces from studios completely make a joke of our magazine and entertainment journalism. Ouch. And then we talked to uh, Meredith, dot dash Meredith, who's, uh, who bought EW uh, last year. They declined to comment on the letter, but they did confirm that it was sent. Ben, you worked at EW for many years, so yes. uh, too bad if it's awkward for you. What do you, what do you think of this? Well, I am, uh, I'm probably the last, person standing who still believes that EW is a brand worth um, worth something and that it I still feel that its core mission um, when it started which was to sort of make sense of it what was then considered an expanding exploding media universe like 12 cable channels or whatever it was mm-hmm. back then mm-hmm. that mission still makes sense to me I still think that it's a great brand I think under the proper stewardship and if they can sort of rediscover the soul of that magazine, there's life in it. Um, again, I'm probably the last person on earth who believes in that magazine, but I do. Well, I do you agree with the, what the email 
this internal email that I, I gather has caused quite a lot of uh, unhappiness internally. Do, do you agree with what it alleges with this accusation? I, I think that there was a time when EW was leading the cultural conversation. I don't feel that it's doing that now. Um, and um, I think that that has been decades of deterioration at, at the magazine in terms of, of editorial. Um, but, I, you know, I... I I mean, we, we should give our, our, our listeners the context that this email comes a year after EW fired the top editor, J.D. Heyman, who the rap broke the initial story. I'll shout out to our media reporter, Lindsay Ellison, that he had been accused of making racist and sexist comments internally. There had been like eight different complaints about him to HR and um, followed recently by actually a lawsuit by uh, somebody who continued these, who made these allegations in a legal complaint against him, and JD Heyman lost his job a year ago. So now there's been that shift, presumably a to editor. a, yeah, yeah. Mary Margaret's name. Very well liked, uh, Mary Margaret. Uh, mm -hmm. She's apparently very well liked there. She's got a, a challenging road ahead. I mean, it's not just um, the internal problems at EW, it's the sort of magazine universe as a whole. Uh, has some challenges. And well, they have a website too. They're not just a magazine. I mean, we're true. a website and we publish magazines. I, that is, that's true. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that it's, I, I think what EW probably needs to do is rediscover its soul and get back to the basics of what made it a great magazine in the first place. And that requires uh, some heavy lifting, but I do think it's possible to do. I mean, I, I am mean, biased. Do, like, this is where I grew up as a journalist. But yeah. um, that's where I always read you as a journalist. That's how I know you. That's how I, I've we only met in the past year, but I always felt like I knew you because I'd read you for so many years in EW. Uh, right back at you. I mean, I, yeah. from the Washington yeah. Post days. Uh, <laughs> all the way back there. But it does kind of beg the question, and uh, I don't want to belabor it, but this idea of, you know, J.D. Heyman was, you know, a good editor, talented editor, but lost his job after over behavioral things, you know, now we have somebody who by all accounts is a really nice editor. I think I come from ESPN, Mary Margaret. It's like, she came to not come so, from, yeah. from entertainment. She does not have a lot of magazine experience. That is right. And so, um, you know, that, that tension between having uh, a leader who is, you know, competitive, but not, um, but can still create a culture that is, that is produced, that is a, a place where people are happy and be producing great content. That seems to be something that not, not just EW is facing as a challenge yeah. in this it, environment. It seem like a heavy lift to me to be both confident in your job and a decent human being. Um, and I think that that's, you know, agreed, agreed. But, but yeah. just speaking, you know, from what we're all experiencing, we are two years into this pandemic and people, there's a lot of other uh, stresses and emotional, you know, difficulties yes. that people are dealing with in what otherwise would be a less charged work environment. That's all I'm saying. So I, I just, sure. it's just, it's challenging. It's just challenging. Okay. Yeah. Over to you. <laughs> okay. Well, let's change gears a little bit. There's a lot going on in the TV world at the moment. And we have uh, just released research from Disney general entertainment and FX there were 559 scripted original series for adults wow. in 2021. That's wow. up 13% from last year, or from 2020 rather, um, and uh, up 23% from five years ago. So there is an enormous amount of uh, scripted stuff going on right now. Uh, it's um, a, a lot to get through. Yeah, and, and this is coming out of FX. I, I, I didn't. I don't know if I realized that this must be why John Landgraf, who runs FX, um, coined the phrase peak TV. I guess it was from a study that he might have commissioned <laughs> at his own shop. But that is, you know, we thought that we had hit peak TV a couple of years ago, but I guess we haven't. Uh, I, apparently not. I mean, I, uh, I feel like I, uh, there were certain points of the pandemic where I felt like I had exhausted Netflix um, right. and some other, you know, and, and just like I reached the end, but apparently not. I mean, there's just, an endless stream of this stuff coming out. Yeah. Wow. So it's a new year, a new award season. 
Yeah. The, uh, ABC has announced that it is going to have a host for this year's Oscars, um, but they have not announced who that host is going to be. And I suspect, Sharon, you have some ideas on this very. I issue. don't have. I do not want this problem. I don't know why you think I should have any opinions. No, I, I think Judd Apatow put out there that sort of conversation that that Steve Martin and Martin Short should host. That got like a bazillion comments. Yeah, that's going to really bring in tons and tons of young. Uh, well, that's <laughs> right. But then somebody threw Selena Gomez in the mix too, because that's from um, Only Murders in the Building. They're like the three leads from Only Murders in the Building, which I thought was delightful, by the way. Um, but anyway. Well, uh, I, I think Ricky Gervais is probably looking for a job and maybe Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. It'll um, be very interesting. For a couple of years, this became like the gig nobody wanted. Nobody friggin' wanted. It was completely thankless. If you, you know, you could work your ass off and you'd still be in the governor's ball walking around after the Oscars, watching people about, about you behind their, behind their champagne flutes. And then watching like the Twitter feed, somebody rip you to shreds. I mean, I just feel like it's friggin' thankless and nobody really wants to do it anymore. Do you remember the David Letterman debacle? Um, yeah, that's that was, a really long time ago, but there have been yeah. so many debacles. That was a very famous debacle, but there were others since then. I mean, the Anne Hathaway, um, what oh, was yeah. the one with um, – yeah. The, uh, I mean, has anybody done it well since, like, Billy Crystal? Or, James Franco, know? That thank you, James Franco, um, who was, like, half asleep all the way through the Oscars. And then they brought back – I mean, listen, Billy Crystal I thought was great, but obviously I'm old and I'm not the demo that they want. I don't think I'd even Billy Crystal again. I, I mean, I would watch just if they brought like Maria Sophia from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh my God, that's such that a, would be amazing. Well, you have a warm spot for her. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> All right, um, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time here. Let's let's move this thing along. The Screen Actors Guild nominations were also announced of late. Uh, the Power of the Dog and House of Gucci led in film, while Ted Lasso and one of our favorites, Succession, tied for the most noms in the TV category. Yeah, like pretty much everybody named Roy was nominated for for uh, um, an award this year. Um, and it, it's, you know, I watched the last episode again last night, and the acting is extraordinary in this. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. I was thinking Kendall has like the big scenery-chewing moments in the show, but really the, the smaller performances, the look on... Um, the faces of like Shiv's look when she realizes Tom has betrayed her or Roman's look when he has to decide whether he's going to betray his, his dad. These are amazing acting moments. Um, they are. I agree. It's going to be a really interesting. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine that one of these guys is going to lose to like Billy Crudup or, or anybody else um, or one of the squid game actors or something like that. It, it, it might be Kieran Culkin's ear. I got to say he was, he showed so much depth, particularly I did the same thing you did, by the way, I watched the last, uh, the, the finale again, a couple of weeks ago, just to like savor those last scenes. They were so incredible. Um, so we'll, we'll get to talk about succession endlessly as we get to Emmy season. But um there, yeah, that's going to be interesting to watch what happens with SAG Awards. Yeah, very much. And that brings us to Wax On, Wax Off, uh, where Sharon gets to discuss the stuff that's really making her unhappy and the stuff that's making her happy right now. Well, that, that is safe for my for my therapist, Ben, actually. But I will <laughs> tell you something that's delightful to me this week is something that's not so delightful. So for my wax on, which I haven't done a wax on, wax off in a while. Here it is. Okay. My wax on is got to give a shout out to the amazing staff at The Wrap, which this week uh, won 14 nominations at the LA Press Club with the National Arts and Entertainment Awards. Uh, that is completely amazing. Uh, I particularly want to take note of a nomination in the multimedia package category for a series of conversations we did around cancel culture that uh, really delved into how, what is cancel culture, what, how is it impacting our society, and, and how is it impacting uh, things in our culture that we cover and talk about a lot, whether that's comedy or um, film criticism or journalism. Uh, 
And um, so really appreciate that. And I should also mention that there were two nominations for this podcast. So amazing uh, shout out to my producer of last year, Daniel Goldblatt. Thank you so much for your work and proud to be nominated with you, sir. For my wax off, let me just go back to a favorite topic, the Golden Globes and the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. As I wrote not too long ago in my wax word, I'm pretty surprised to see that the a billionaire hedge fund uh, tycoon named Todd Boley has been named the CEO of the HFPA. The HFPA is, to remind you guys, a nonprofit organization that is um, puts together uh, the, interna the international uh, journalists who cover Hollywood, so to speak. That's what it's meant to be. Many, many of the members are not actually journalists or only barely so, just to qualify, and they vote on the Golden Globes. So the Golden Globes, uh, as you know, were canceled on NBC this year. They just had the awards, which nobody paid attention to. And my issue is that Todd Boley is also the owner of the company that produces the Golden Globes. That's a company called MRC Entertainment. And the and MRC not only produces it, but they make half the money, half of the $60 million licensing fee that is paid by NBC to the HFPA. So he has an enormous conflict of interest in taking over the HFPA. There was no protocol for that. There's no discussion, public discussion about that. And currently now he took over in September. There's no word on him stepping down because of course he was named interim CEO. I have asked the question uh, just a couple of days ago. I have inquired a couple of times as to when he will be replaced by a professional CEO. No word on that. And that is my wax off. Now we're going to talk to two filmmakers shortlisted for documentary for the 2022 Oscars. 15 documentary films have been shortlisted for the 2022 Oscars. Among them are Nanfu Wang's In the Same Breath, which looks at the experiences of people on the ground in China and the United States in the earliest days of the coronavirus. And Megan Milan's Simple as Water, Filmed over five years in five countries, her film looks at war, separation, and displacement as Syrian families seek normalcy. Welcome to the wrap-up, Nanfu and Megan. Thank you. Hi, Sharon. So, Nanfu Wang, you are a Chinese filmmaker. You live in the United States. Your debut film, Hooligan Sparrow, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2016, and it was shortlisted for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature the next year. Your second film, I Am Another You, premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival in 2017, winning two special jury awards. And your third film, One Child Nation, won the Grand Jury Prize for Documentary Feature at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. And now you're, have, you're here with In the Same Breath shortlisted for the Oscar. And we will talk about that film in just a moment. Megan Milan, you are an American documentary film director known for your films, The Lost Boys of Sudan, and the Oscar-winning 2008 film, Smile Pink. Uh, you were born in California. You have a bachelor's from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, a master's in journalism and Latin American studies from Berkeley. Uh, you worked uh, in Brazil before deciding to pursue documentary filmmaker. Um, you directed with John Shank the, uh, the Lost Boys of Sudan, a documentary about two Dinka boys who fled the Sudanese Civil War for the United States uh, that won many awards, including an Independent Spirit Award. And your 2008 film, Smile Pink, focused on efforts to provide free cleft palate surgery in India. That film won the 2008 Academy Award for Best Documentary. And now your film, Simple as Water, was released in 2021 and is shortlisted for the Oscars. So uh, two incredibly accomplished female filmmakers taking on subjects that are really extremely challenging. So Nanfu, let me start with you because, uh, you know, uh, I was pleased to be there at the start of your journey with this film at Sundance last year when we got to speak. And then now we've had another full year of COVID, albeit with the vaccine. Your film, to tell our listeners who have not seen it, takes uh, you to China and is this incredible journey between China and the United States. 
And it started with your experience and your concerns about your own son and led you to Wuhan, China, and many other places. T tell us about the start of the, the genesis of this film, the story with your son. So my family lives um, 300 miles away from Wuhan. In January 2020, um, I took my son to visit my mom. And uh, at the time, there was no uh, official news about the virus. And in fact, that there were talking about uh, unknown pneumonia, but the government quickly said that it was rumor. So I didn't take it seriously and left my son with my mom in China. And I came back to the US. And the day I came back, Wuhan went into lockdown. So the initial few days was me trying to figure out if my mom was safe, if my son was safe. And during that process of figuring out more information on the severity of the virus, I realized how the Chinese government um, didn't reveal the truth, the reality of the virus. And in fact, mm -hmm. there were a lot of cover up and lack of transparency and misleading information that intentionally were sent to the people. So that was when I started thinking that this were important. And then I started documenting and that was the beginning of the film. Yeah, and I think that when you had the right to believe that when the film came out, that there was some kind of ending to that story, which is, you know, the misinformation that became part of the experience of the pandemic in the United States. And there was a, you know, a really fascinating, there is a really fascinating parallel in your storytelling about the, the, the attempt to control information in China and the distortion of facts here in the United States. But what we've had, I think, in the past year is we've seen the real consequences of that. Uh, and I'm sure you couldn't have predicted what all of that attempt to distort and misinform would, would result in. What are your thoughts? When I started the film in January 2020, um, I was clear that the film is political and it's about how the Chinese government mishandled the pandemic, the outbreak at the time. We didn't know it was going to be a pandemic. What really became shocking to me was how America responded to it too and how I started seeing the peril mistakes that the two governments made and the same level of misinformation, lack of transparency from the government. So that became the theme of this documentary and um, something that I think challenged my own preconceived notions about what the U.S. stand for. Um, and to, to answer those questions and to really understand why the two opposing political systems would um, respond to it in a similar fashion um, became the, the core of the film. That's interesting. Um, you mentioned before we started recording the podcast that you'd read a piece that I wrote about uh, having lost my mother to COVID. So I lost my mother to COVID mm -hmm. about... Um, Three weeks is it now? December December thirtieth. So we are almost not quite three weeks. So I'm still a little bit raw, <laughs> and didn't expect to lose her. And she was um, anyway. What was heartbreaking to me about that loss, and with eight hundred thousand lives lost in this country, she's one of so many heartbreaking stories, of course, but. My issue was that there were members of my family who decided not to be vaccinated. My mother was vaccinated, but not boosted. And uh, members of my family decided not to give her a particular treatment in the hospital, which I had no ability to change a decision on. And I have no idea if it would have saved her life. But um, I sit here now as, I think, you know, a direct victim of <laughs> what your film is talking about and how important it is I, to, I, to learn from the mistakes is all I can say from this um, horrible situation, you know, and the how, how brave it was for you because you uh, not only did, did, did you get footage here and, and you, it, it, it does take a certain uh, courage to tell the truth, not just about China, which lots of people criticize China, but also the United States. And one of the things that, you know, when I got into discussions during the post-funeral with, with my family in the Midwest, yeah, I said, you know, they don't want to take the vaccine. I said, every government in the world 
from communist China to the Western democracies to autocratic countries have all looked at this issue and concluded that this is the best course to get the vaccine. But um, I know there's a question there somewhere, but I, <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it incredible, the impact of all of this. Yeah, two yeah. Years in. Yeah, um, I, um, at the end of the film, I wrote that the film was dedicated to all the victims of COVID. Mm -hmm. And one thing that was heartbreaking and challenging was um, when I read your story, it was devastating. It's your family mm -hmm. at the course of how, how she get infected and how this just happened so helplessly. And, and when I talked to a lot of people that I interviewed, their own story is also, each one of them is unique. Each one of them, how they got infected, how they dealt with it, how they faced it, and how that affected their families so unique. And I think this is a similar to Megan's film too, is their stories, each individual stories is extremely unique and heartbreaking when they get to, when you get to know them. But my challenge is I feel like when we count them as numbers, it's like this is like how many thousands uh, infection or death, they became numbers, they became statistics. And, and that's something that I was hoping that the film can do and not just to like making people feel like that's far and became numb to those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and I mean, Megan's film is similar in that sense. It's like you could easily feel like this is a distance, this is just a statistics, and this is so far away. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for, for saying all those things. And, and let's talk about Megan's film because um, that also, you know, obviously the, these films just, you get, you cut right to the humanity of tragedies that are, so in many ways too big for the individual to conceptualize and to understand. But when you meet this Syrian mom with her four children, having just lost a baby on a boat, that's all we ever find out, um, you can't help but connect to those people. So let me back up just a little bit, Megan. How did you come to make this film and how did you choose your subjects there's I guess five of them is that right five stories five vignettes five stories yeah. sorry, and uh, second. sorry yeah and then how did you convince them to let you spend all that time and be so up close mm -hmm. and intimate with them yeah. well I'm just feeling your mom I'm so sorry your thank loss you. it's just thank you. um the films that we gave you huh to sit with I'm sure everything has resonance right everything it does yeah such this primal connection um the the sort of just to continue where where Nanfu was talking i mean i think that was really the challenge of this film for us was a way to of course one of the things that defines and unites the experience we're sharing is the absolutely intense vital loss each family has endured one of those but to never have that be what's defining them Right, so their their stories, even in these vignettes, was to a way to you know have a fullness to them. So, to to back up as to how this got started, I really came to this story not as a filmmaker, um, not as someone who was out looking for my next film, but really just as a human being. Back in 2015, as the migration across from Turkey to Greece really intensified, I was waking up every morning just consumed with the news and unable to reconcile how we were living in a world that would allow people who had managed to get themselves out of war zones to then have to negotiate with smugglers and climb barbed wire. It just, in this very sort of core human connection way, I just was outraged. Um, but what was also happening for me in my personal life is I was the mother of a three-year-old. And so that shift that happens, that way of seeing and experiencing the world. So everything, both the joy and the beauty, but also the injustice was from the point of view of a parent. And so it was particularly, as I was, you know, every morning spending hours, it was photos of parents or stories of interviews of parents um, that were pulling me in. And I was just trying to figure out like how I would react in that situation. Would I rise to the occasion? Would I say everything's gonna be okay, even though I had no basis or control over being able to utter, you know, that very simple phrase you, you, you say to children so often. And so then, 
you know, after a while, if morning after morning, that's what your heart and your head is consumed with. I said, I decided I really had to think about making a film and I was somewhat slow to do so. I had made, as you mentioned, Lost Boys of Sudan, which was a, a journey story about two young Southern Sudanese men um, and didn't Incredible feel like film, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. I um, wanted to do sort of a different country's version on that. And, um, but also because there was such amazing reporting and so much footage shot by Syrians themselves so intimately and intensely in the moment. And so I, I was having a, trying to figure out, well, what would I have to contribute? And I came back to that point of entry personally of looking at the experience of war and displacement through the eyes of parents. And so that was, once I sort of landed on that point of entry, it felt like a valid connection to the story. Um, and then I pretty quickly knew I wasn't gonna focus on one family for, on one level, because I didn't think, I felt like that would be too anemic to the scale and the multi-dimensionality of this experience to try and, you know, task one family with that. And also that I didn't think, I didn't want it to have sort of this false sense of beginning, middle, end and completeness. I kind of wanted it, 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 it from my experience with, with um, Lost Boys and from talking to people, it's such a it's such a layered and continuum. So I landed on this idea of multiple families and sort of these deep dives for a moment in time. Mm. Um, but then was the that was sort of the aha and like the path forward. And then it was about building sort of the ecosystem, the constellation of people who made this film together with me. And so leaning a little bit on those conversations and relationships I had from Lost Boys of Sudan, I was able to connect with a lot of Syrians who had gone through this and refugee advocates and freelance journalists. And so hundreds of phone conversations to try and understand sort of what are some of the commonalities of this family experience of war geographically, where was it important we be? So we needed to be in neighboring countries because most people who are displaced don't make it far. They So we, we looked for families in Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey. Um, and then also in Europe and the US. But um, we, I was, I mean, one of the horrors of this uh, Syrian conflict is that half the country has been displaced. A benefit to the filmmaking was that we had Syrians um, with film experience and journalism experience and social work experience to rely on and to build the team with. So we had hmm. two Syrian co-producers who worked across storylines, but then in each country sort of had its own family of a crew of, researchers and field producers who really did the absolutely essential piece of relationship building. First identifying multiple families that were interested in participating and then establishing relationships with them for that collaboration because- I mean, So, so did you, so you yourself were not present for the filmmaking? Oh, no, no, I was there for everything. Yeah, so I was there for all of the filmmaking, except for our Syria storyline. So we have one storyline that takes place in Syria, and we actually worked mm -hmm. with two women who are credited under pseudonyms. Um, but other than, and, and that was the first time that I actually wasn't, um, you know, feet Present. in the living room, <laughs> as I yeah. like to say, rather. Yeah. Um, but um, but to get, you know, there's so tent. many. Yes, <laughs> or, in the tent. Or, <laughs> yes, or in the dorm room or, no. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just this very sacred space. But before any filming started, I mean, the pre-production on this film much, much, much outlasted um, the actual days of filming because it was really get identifying the right families, but we wanted to make sure we got sort of all the right dimensions on the screen, but we wanted to get to them in the right way. And so there was just a whole lot of time spent um, figuring out which families who wanted to collaborate with us, um, it's, uh, you know, building our relationships with, and then timing it right. So we actually filmed with most of the families for one very concentrated period, but there's sort of this continuum of the relationship both before the filming and after the filming and, and the actual shooting days or just sort of one piece of that, which mm. um, it, it's sort of like my tools I use are these relationships. And so it was a, a allowing us to sort of come in and one aspect of our relationship was the days that we filmed. Um, and it, 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 it just seems to work to make it feel pretty organic and fluid. Well, it, it definitely did work and the, there's so many moments that you chose that jump out at me. I, I really recommend the film to our listeners if they haven't yet seen it. it um, both of these films, by the way, are on HBO now, which of course you have HBO, everybody has HBO. Um, I mean, really, really worth seeing.
Um, the editing choices were so beautiful. They're so subtle and they're so revealing of the soul of this little boy. It was devastating to watch the decisions that he had to make. And, and in some ways, uh, surprising, maybe it's a Western Westerners, uh, perception of him wanting to take on the role of being the parent, the missing parent to his younger siblings and the, the struggle of his mother to try to help him grow and do the right thing for him at, at great personal sacrifice. I mean, everything these people are doing is at great personal sacrifice for their children. They're, th they're risking their own lives. Um, so, I, and it, it's impossible not to notice that, you know, these two films are both made by mothers and that you bring your, um, maternal um, heart to the work and that takes you all the way it you know penetrates in an incredibly powerful way so I would just say Megan's film it's it's sort of this really personal connection to these real people who have left their homes risked life and limb and now are now the flotsam human flotsam on the, on the European continent, trying to put their lives back together. And then Nanfu, yours, your film has so, has so much sweep, but still has the heart of, of a woman and the heart of, of a mother. I would argue um, watching these scenes in emergency rooms in China that you got people to shoot. Um, it, at, at this point, I would just love to, to know sort of what is the feedback that you've gotten on each of your films and how you feel if the impact has been uh, felt that you that you have gotten back from audiences that what you were intending to put out that it has been seen and 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 understood. Nanfu, can I start with you? Yeah. So with every film that I made, um, the most most I think valuable and important feedback to me is from Chinese people, because I knew that. Um, a lot of people saw it here, and uh, that's true with every film. And there is no official distribution in China, and it would never in the long, in the near future, won't be. Um, so I treasure every single piece of feedback when people were able to watch it and send back yeah. to me from China. Yeah. And in China, the situation is um, over the past year, the government was able to write the history, uh, the version of how they responded to COVID. And it's a successful, it's a victory story. And most of the people now looking back, they lost the memory of how bad and how horrible it was. The memory became what they had seen on the news, um, the narrative that was written, that was, that was put out by the government. So a lot of people kind of like selectively forgot what it was mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And the feedback that I've gotten from people is um, how this film documented that collective memory so it wouldn't be lost. And how when they watched it, it reminded them that this was the reality. And if it wasn't documented, a lot of things would have, forgot, would have been forgotten. Um, and I appreciate that. And in the US, um, most of the feedback, or I would say my hope, because it's very strange during the virtual year, there is uh, not a lot of chances of meeting people in person. So I did like occasionally people would send me what they think. And what I appreciate is I knew that this is a film where everybody has their own experience. Everybody has their own interpretation um, because they have lived through the pandemic. And I was hoping that if they watch the film, and felt resonated or felt the film had either confirmed how they felt or challenged what they didn't think before. And that has been the two different um, types of feedback I got. People are like, yeah, this is how I thought of it. Or people say, I've never looked at it that way. And this mm. is like, in yeah. a way that uh, forces me to reflect, to also see the clarity um, through the the you know super, on the surface of the very chaotic situation yeah 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 megan yeah no i mean i love um 
this stage when the film is out, it feels like part of the filmmaking is when it goes out Definitely. into the world and the Absolutely. audience starts to tell you what your intentions were or what they're feeling. And I think, <laughs> right. you know, and sometimes you're like, exactly. And they're, oh, you're right. I didn't see that, you know? And so I, um, I, I too, like Nanfu was saying, I mean, she, because it, with, of the pandemic, we all have some experience. I, I think because our team focused so much on that very primal shared experience of family, um, yeah. that is such an, an opening that um, people from such disparate, like all over you know, the world have found entry um, into the film. And I, we, we, were, we set out to do sort of, you know, um, a flow of emotion that people will be emotionally informed about the experience of displacement and war. And of course there are pieces of factual that you get, but really it's more of this sort of visceral deeper understanding of what that is. And so yeah. um, that's been really gratifying. People telling anecdotes about their own childhood and their single mom who always made it home for bath time, you know, even though like they're growing up in the suburbs, you know. And then of course, um, great. Syrians themselves. I mean, this was the first film that as I was approaching people to participate, I do a lot of social issue documentary that I never uttered or had any of the crew utter anything like, if only the world knew what you were going through things might change because by the time we came to this story, everyone knew, mm. you know, the coverage was there. And so we had to find collaboration and they had to find value in the telling. And so it's been so gratifying to have the people in the film and, and the crew and um, other Syrians who are advisors feel like we got it right. And that we said something about this experience that honored it and that gave people the layers um, that they have and not limiting them to being defined by this moment, but um, an expansiveness. So that's, that was, um, you know, you show cuts and stuff along the way and you feel like you're doing it right, but it's really not until you cast it out and strangers start telling right. you um, what they think that, right. you, that you know, um, whether you've gotten it right. So yeah. Amazing. Well, amazing. But the situation continues. And so as long as this is ongoing, uh, the stories need to be told and put out into the world. Yeah. So um, thank you with all my heart to oh. Nanfu Wang and Megan Milan for your films. And thank you for coming on the wrap up to talk about it. And good luck making <laughs> that those five one of those five nominee slots at the Oscars that's coming up soon but regardless you've made really remarkable films and thank you for that yes. thank you <laughs> yeah thank you so much thanks For the second year in a row, the Sundance Film Festival is going to be virtual, meaning that a whole lot of emerging filmmakers won't get the chance to present their movies in front of a packed Park City audience, which is really too bad. But you will be able to participate and buy tickets online. And of course, The Wrap will have a daily studio where we're going to be showcasing interviews with filmmakers, cast and crew among the people in the festival this year with directing films are uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Eva Longoria Baston, Amy Poehler, um, festival favorite Ramin Barani. Uh, they're all bringing films uh, to the festival, which promises to be very full and very exciting. Joining us with all the details of this year's installment is the Raps film reporter, Brian Welk. Hi, Brian. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So what are the big films everyone is looking forward to this year? And are you expecting any films to break any acquisition records? There's lots of interesting films on the slate. There's some, a lot from first time filmmakers, some from, but some well-known name, well names, um, films like uh, from Jesse Eisenberg's uh, When You Finish Saving the World. Amy Poehler has a documentary about Lucille Ball called Lucy and Desi. Um, there's a lot of uh, Ramin Barani, as you mentioned earlier, Sharon, uh, he's got a documentary called Second Chance. Lots of uh, big movies, but also there's a, a Kanye West documentary that's getting a lot of buzz, but that's at Netflix already. In terms of the acquisitions, um, many of the people I spoke to say there's no reason why there couldn't be another record-breaking sale. Last year, you saw some records for Coda and Summer yeah. of Soul on the docks. What did Coda sell for again? Was it $15 million? $25 million. $25 million. Wow, that's a big number for Sundance. And Summer of Soul sold for fifteen, which is, yeah, huge for For Sundance. a dock, that's got to be 
but it's it's likely to win the Oscar, so that's yeah a good bet that somebody made. But I mean, the the thing is, you know, there's just as many new streamers that need content, more aggressive worldwide buyers than ever before. So many of the people I spoke with said, yes, we're in virtual again, but there's no reason to to think that there couldn't potentially be another sale that would reach those previous records or or break them. What film will do that? Hard to say. I don't know if there's one one movie that everyone's like, well, that's the one. But there's a lot of interesting titles this year, and there seems to be a sense that oh, some of these movies are bigger in scale and scope than what was available last year when all the movies that were made were a little more looked like they were made, made on, made on their phones yeah. from 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 lockdown. Might have been. So um, I want to talk about the docs in a second, but what are some of the like name just a couple of the big titles that you think. Um, have, have a lot of buzz around them or have an anticipation? Uh, Cha-Cha Real Smooth is one. Um, this is a What's funny story. Uh, this is uh, kind of a, about a someone who's in a quarter-life crisis, say, you know, he's a uh, a, a young, young guy. Um, he spends his time drinking and partying, but he decides to get a job working bar mitzvahs. And, um, mm. and so he can still continue to, you know, to drink and party, but you know, how he grows and it's, it's directed and starring um, Cooper Rafe is his name. And what's interesting about him is this is his second movie. His first movie shit house was the winner at South by Southwest film festival, but it won in 2020 when that festival was canceled. So two right. festivals now he still has not been to a film festival and he's like, wow, the hottest new name. Wow. Uh, that movie also stars Dakota Johnson, uh, who I think is a producer on it. Um, That's and, very cool. Is it a comedy? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like fun. I will that definitely look great. after that one. Yeah. And um, there's some others. Uh, there's a, a Tignataro is directing a movie called uh, Am I Okay? And another, another is Dakota it, is, Johnson a... movie. Really? Yes. She's in. She's in at least two movies. Is this going to be a Dakota Johnson festival? There's usually there's usually some indie actor who ends up being in like five movies. Regina Hall is another one that's she's in two. I think she's in one drama and then one comedy. It's a big satire called uh, "Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul," and it's a it's a satire about mega churches. And uh, I've heard, yeah, some big things about that film. I want, I want to see that one. I, I'm really looking forward to laughing. You can spare me all the horror movies. Um, some of the docs <laughs> I've already, st I've been uh, fortunate enough to watch a couple of them. Uh, I got to see Eva Longoria's doc in advance because I'm interviewing her and um, Oscar De La Hoya. Could, yes. Eva Longoria, so she did a documentary, it's very, very interesting about uh, a prize fight between Julio Cesar Chavez, who was the uh, world champion at the time, and Oscar De La Hoya, an up-and-coming uh, guy from the from the from East LA, and it's a fascinating story about cultural um, cultural significance and like what it is to be Mexican and what it is to be a Mexican American, and and the tension between those two things, and who represents authentic Mexican culture. It's really, I mean, it's just, it's a brilliant way to tell that story. That was great. Are there any docs that you are looking out for? I mean, yeah, quickly on, uh, yeah, on uh, La Guerra Civil, um, that movie, I, I, the trailer I came out for that one. Yeah. And, and I thought that was, yeah, fascinating that exactly what you said, that does it sounds like something that if you're not a boxing fan, you could still really enjoy this film um, for that reason that it Definitely. grapples with race. Um, Second Chance, which is Ramin Badrani's film. Um, this is What's a movie about? about the guy who invented the bulletproof vest and he went around and he demonstrated shooting himself for all these different cops and, you know, law enforcement agents. He shot himself 192 times and he's alive <laughs> to tell his story. <laughs> And uh, just, you know, it, I mean, but of course what the movie grapples with and is makes it a very American story is that like he made this safer, he made, uh, invented something that is, you know, 
designed to make guns safer in a way, but now has proliferated their use even more because people, you know, bulletproof vests are, are very common. Um, so that's, well, one I I that's a great, that's a great like window into how Sundance is so cool because Ramin Barani is somebody who lasted the white tiger on Netflix. And before that he did this tiny indie movie about people pumping and dumping properties in Florida. He's just such an interesting even filmmaker. Before, even before that he was, uh, his movies, man, push cart and chop shop are two favorites of mine that are just, yeah, so small. I'd love to see him make another movie on really, really small scale like that. Uh, but um, those were such great, you know, American slice of life. And, but White Tiger tale. is like an enormously ambitious, sweeping, epic tale in India. And he's not Indian. Um, and now he's yeah. doing this quirky documentary. So like, shout out to Ramin, man. You're, you're, you're the coolest. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that one's Brian, yeah, go ahead. I mean, there, there's so many. Uh, I've heard a lot of big things about Aftershock, which is another, uh, follows the yep. maternal health crisis. Um, there's Among one black, that I'm really interested mothers. in. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's one I'm interested in called, um, meet me in the bathroom. And this is about like rock bands in early two thousands. So bands like the strokes, the yeah, yeah, yeahs, LCD sound system. And it's based on a book, which was this giant oral history of that period. Talk to all the different people. And if you're like a music fan, it's become just like a, a Bible an absolute document of of that era and uh wow. it, it's Very been adapted cool. into a, a feature now so as someone who's a big fan of all these bands um you know but did not grow up in that period um it, i'm very excited for that one that one's playing in the midnight section so very cool and all three well, of those are acquisition as well. If any of you are watching this on a video, you can see behind me people moving furniture. What they're doing is actually building the Raps interview studio today because we're kicking off our studio this weekend. Uh, Brian, myself, and Steve Pond are going to be doing interviews with lots of filmmakers, and we're uh, looking forward to you following our coverage. We're going to we'll have reviews. We'll have not just the video interviews, but reviews, um, coverage of all of the acquisitions and um, lots of other coverage of the festival as a, as a cultural milestone. So, Brian, thank you so much. And uh, eat your Wheaties, man, because it's going to be a busy weekend. Thank you. And that, that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all our listeners. And remember to follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. We're so glad to be back. See you next time.